0: PEDS pod. Hello and welcome back to BNSSG PedsPod. pod. I'm Ruth Bowen. I'm a Bristol GP working for the BNSSG training hub, bringing child and young person education to primary care clinicians. Today we'll be using a case to take us through the topic of head injuries in children. So we'll be thinking about when immediate referral to A&E is warranted, indications for a CT head, safety netting advice for families, discussing the topic of concussion and when a delayed referral to A&E might be warranted. I'm delighted to have Dr Michael Malley back on the podcast who, when he's not working on the front line of emergency medicine in the developing world with MSF, works in the A&E department at Bristol Children's Hospital. So let's take a trip. Michael, would you mind just introducing yourself for anyone who's not heard your previous episode on non-blanching rash? Sure. Hi, yeah, so my name is
1: Michael Malley. I'm one of the consultants in paediatric emergency medicine at Bristol Children's Hospital and one of the leads of the new GP stream that we have co-located in the Children's Hospital uh, Emergency Department. If anyone wants to have more information about that, they're very welcome to get in touch with me anytime.
0: Fantastic. Today, Michael's here to talk to us about head injury. So if we go through a case together today... Michael, you're working in the Pete AE department and you receive a phone call from an ANP working in a local GP surgery with the following case. A mother brought in her 21-month-old, who fell out of a high chair which was 60 centimetres off the ground. She was distracted by her other child for a few seconds in the room next door and thinks he must have wriggled out of the straps as she rushed back in, hearing a thump and finding him on the hard-tiled floor. He was inconsolable for about 20 minutes afterwards. Spent the next hour or two refusing food, not wanting to play, and vomited once. There's no history of loss of consciousness or seizure activity. Now, two hours post-injury, the ANP notices a two centimetre raised bump over the right frontal region. But he's eating a biscuit, smiling, and playing with the blood pressure machine. There's no focal neurology, no obvious bony tenderness, and no other injuries to note. What else would you want to know from the ANP?
1: Yeah, so I think this sounds like quite a thorough assessment that the P has done in this case, and it feels like grey areas possibly are that it sounds like this was an unwitnessed form, and that we've obviously been not quite ourselves for a little while and we've had one vomit. In the discussion, the and has covered a lot of the red flags which would make us want to do a CT. I guess in the mind of someone on the other end of the phone in the A&E department our, our big management plan like what change of management is do we need to do a CT here or not mm. and do we have any safeguarding concerns about this family and I think that would possibly just be the other thing to touch on here does this sound plausible and do we have any safeguarding concerns regarding this family one thing I'd say on that actually which I say to most people in the department or anyone who will listen to me is that the standard almost with these injuries that you can get to is almost that you could direct a film of what happened during the injury. And I think it actually works for medical presentations as well if you imagine if we're sitting in this room now and you say, right, well, no, so it's a high chair, but is it one of those reclining ones or is it ones that, that sit straight up and do, do they have fastenings to, to buckle in? Okay, okay, no, we need to change that high chair. Prop person, get me a new high chair that looks more like this. Yeah, yeah, um, okay, and then a so really like,
0: clear your head.
1: Really clear, and then how high is it off the floor? What is on the floor exactly as we got here with the tiled surface? How have they gone down? Have they gone down on their front? Have they gone down on their back? Where did the mum actually find them? What were they doing at that time? What happened next? who is in the room, and actually that happens quite quickly. And if you can't imagine that, if you can't direct a film of it, because it just doesn't quite make sense to you, then that's when some of those alarm bells go to say, well, maybe this doesn't quite make sense from a safeguarding perspective, or well, maybe I just need to find out more information about it.
0: Or indeed, are there any inconsistencies with that, with that changing picture exactly. in your head? Okay, exactly. thanks. What advice would you give the A&P? Is this a child that you'd be happy for her to send home or do you think they need to come into the AE department?
1: Yeah, I think this is a child that we'd be very happy to send home. I think they've done a wonderful assessment. Our question is, is there likely to be intracranial pathology here? So is mm. there likely to be a bleed inside the skull or indeed a skull fracture? And I think from the skull fracture perspective, it sounds like there's no good signs of a basal skull fracture, for example, like battle sign, pander eyes, mm. anything like that, any CSF, rhinorrhea, or coming from the ears or bleeding from the ears. And it sounds like it's not bony tenderness over the actual lump. One little tip for that actually is that if you press over any bruise on anyone, it's gonna be a little bit tender. Whereas actually if you squeeze from side to side or you press just away from it, so normally like squeeze towards where the bruise is, you're compressing those bones, but you're not kind of pressing directly on the bruise. So, you're kind of testing the bones, but not the actual skin where the bruise is, which we don't really care
0: about. And maybe a bit of distraction in there as well, because I often find with children that if you go anywhere near something they know is sore, they're going to scream before you've even touched them.
1: Definitely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And we know that the threshold for half a CT, as I put it, is three vomits. So, this child's had one. Yes, that may be the first of three or the first of mm. six or whatever. But I don't think they need to be observed in a specific environment during that time, as long as we're happy that the parents are happy to come back or to come to the emergency department with appropriate safety netting advice.
0: So you mentioned the vomiting. Apart from that, anything else that would change your mind to make you think actually this child needs to come in either to be observed or for a CT?
1: Yeah, I think the broad way to say that is that everyone sees lots of head injuries, right? Like it's a really, really common thing that happens to lots of children. And we know that most children have a head injury, They go on the floor they cry almost immediately they scream for a little while then they come back to normal they might be a little bit sad afterwards for a while and then eventually when they're distracted they do normal things again and if you're straying from that normality then that's probably one that needs to come and see us. so there's anything that sticks in your mind and says that's just not quite right i've seen a lot of these and this isn't like normal that's one that should probably come in specific things would obviously be persistent vomiting so more than two vomits they should come and see us any focal neurology whatsoever, a loss of consciousness, I'd say at all, probably needs to come to us. Actually, the nice guidelines are for if you have a loss of consciousness for more than five minutes, that's half a CT. So you don't get a CT even if you've lost consciousness for five minutes, you're halfway there. And then if you vomit or have amnesia, then you'll get a CT. I
0: see, okay.
1: So it's quite a high threshold. But I think an obvious loss of consciousness should come to us. And then any large bruising or any inconsistency at all in the history. So any concern about a, a non-accidental injury or an inflicted injury should definitely come our way.
0: And that's obviously thinking about a CT. Is there anyone where you think they don't need a CT? I'm not worried about non-accidental injury, but I still want them to come to us. Are there any others that would fit that criteria?
1: It's a really, really good question because it's a grey area in, in the middle, isn't it? And I think it probably relies a little bit more on the nuance of the case and say, if you are not happy with mm-hmm. this child going home and you think there is a high chance that they are going to come to harm, then of course they come to us no matter what criteria they meet. If They have had two vomits and they are drowsy come and see it so you're kind of almost hitting two bases so send them yes. and if you are just worried that they are abnormally drowsy and most paediatric problems end in drowsiness and lethargy mm-hmm. and so if you've got a floppy or lethargic or drowsy child that should always come our way irrespective of the other red flags
0: Okay and with these patients sometimes parents can be a little bit reluctant about coming in what can they expect when they come to the A&E department what can we warn parents is the likely pathway they're going to go through
1: Yeah and The likely pathway is that obviously to come in, book in, be triaged. And then if they don't have red flag symptoms requiring Mm. a CT, and those are red flag symptoms, which are obviously available on the NICE website and the Bristol Children's Guideline, which you can find on the internet, then they're going to be triaged probably fairly low if they are otherwise alert and active. Mm -hmm. And then at the worst of times in the winter, that's looking at a significant weight unless anything else happens and obviously in the summer a little bit quicker so they will look at a significant weight you can look at that two ways you can say if you are quite happy in gp surgery that they are currently pretty well they don't have any red flags and the parents are confident that they'll know to come in with the right symptoms then that's fine they can do that observation at home. If you are a little bit worried, if they do have to wait a little while with us, then that's a period of observation as well. And they're in the right place and we're there if anything happens. But it's pretty unusual for a low mechanism of injury without those red flags in the initial setting to have a significant intracranial bleed that needs emergency management. So I would say you can be pretty reassured without those red flags with a sensible family who you are confident understands the risks to get them to come to us if those red flags appear.
0: When you say a, a significant mechanism of injury, what would you consider to be significant?
1: Yeah, I think this is also an interesting thing, because you can say that that 60 centimetre fall onto a hard floor, that was one of our children. You would think, I don't have children, but if you think <laughs> if you think that was, if you were the parent of that child, you would think that is pretty significant. Can you hear mm. the thwack on the floor and you think, goodness me, but we're talking more about road traffic accidents, really, it falls okay. from over three metres, particularly onto hard floors. And any sort of projectile that are hitting at high velocity. So we're talking fairly high threshold to say a really dangerous mechanism. Most of the children that we see with decent mechanisms will fall from a height definitely above their own height.
0: When you say hit by something from a hard velocity, could that just be something being thrown at them at high speed? a
1: cricket ball would do it yeah so we've had a few this year people inspired by the ashes and uh, wanted to play cricket and unfortunately missing catches and hitting on the head and causing a skull fracture so you say yes unfortunately it's possible but a hard object that comes at you at a half decent speed is going to potentially cause you problems so a projectile like that and then i'd say from above the height of the child is normally the, the thing we go for nice guidelines say three meters is a dangerous mechanism
0: does it make a difference where on the head they're hit? I mean, obviously, the frontal region is quite nice and thick. If we change that story so they're hit on the temporal region or somewhere else, would that change anything?
2: I think theoretically, yes. I don't know the exact percentages you know, for the different areas. Obviously, the terrion on the side is the weakest point of your head. So if you've got a focal blow there, then potentially. Colloquially, it's quite often the children who fall backwards onto the occiput who end up having either a seizure after it or end up having a skull fracture there. But realistically. It's not a red flag where you're hit, it's a red flag the consequences of being hit.
0: Okay. You went through some of those indications for CT. So you said about yeah. the multiple vomits, the loss of consciousness, drowsiness, mentioning seizure as well, presumably that's another indication, is it? Yeah. Any, anything else that we've missed, which would be CT or halfway to a CT?
2: Yes, yeah. as you say, it's mainly about mechanism, which we talked about and then some form of neurology. So seizure absolutely gets the CT, and that is very out of the ordinary for most head injuries, right? And that's a good sign that there is something going on. Mm -hmm. Other abnormal neurology might be any focal neurology whatsoever. That might be abnormal pupil sizes. It might be abnormal eye movements. It might be a focal seizure or weakness or hemiplegia or something like that, which is rare but possible. It might be that they are abnormally drowsy or they have a GCS under 15, for up to two hours after the injury. Realistically, if we see a child with a GCS under 15, they need a a CT scan. The other reason to do a CT scan would be you have a definitive suggestion that they do have a skull fracture, and that is the battle sign. And so bruising behind the ear, panda eyes or raccoon eyes, depending on your choice of animal, and and, uh, CSF coming from the nose, blood coming from the ear, or in a child under one year old, a five centimetre bruise. uh, And those are all indications for a CT scan. And as we mentioned at the beginning, non-accidental injury would be a CT scan as well. So broadly, mechanism, any
1: neurology, any sign of a basal skull fracture, any suspicion of a non-accidental injury. And then you've got the less specific ones after that. So vomiting, we know, is a non-specific sign. You can have vomiting with concussion. You lower your vomiting threshold through many different Mm -hmm. things. So three vomits will get you half a CT. You've then got to have further persistent vomiting to get a CT amnesia for at least five minutes will be Mm -hmm. one of those half ones as well. And a loss of consciousness lasting more than five minutes will also get you half a CT. So they're Mm -hmm. the kind of slightly more nebulous ones um, which don't give you a specific reason that you've got focal neurology, non accidental injury, signs of a basal skull fracture or a very dangerous mechanism injury.
0: And how do you apply that to the really young children where you can't do the standard GCS? Do you have another way of doing the GCS? And just thinking about saying amnesia I was certainly thinking about my young children. I don't think they could tell me. I'm not sure how I would be able to work that one out. Does it change how you assess it at all if you're talking young children under the age of five?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think this is not something to admit on a podcast, but I'm pretty bad at doing GCSs in small children mm-hmm. as well. And like I've been a paediatrician for a fair number of okay. years now. And so I very much go on an have poo. And I think it's realistically, are you alert and active? Do you have a GCS of 15? Which I think we can all imagine a child of any age who has a GCS of 15, even if you're one day old, you can see if they handle well, if they're alert, if they're feeding, that kind of thing. They've got a GCS of 15
0: Normally, absolutely. And then
1: it's more the absence of that. So it's not like, oh God, they've got a GCS of 12.5. It's like, are they perfectly normal in a GCS of 15? Yes, okay, that's reassuring. Anything below that is either normal or it's abnormal. Put it there for most small children. And the amnesia question is a really good one. Yeah, no, very difficult to, to do in under five, certainly. So under school age, not going to get anywhere with the amnesia, I don't think. As they get a little bit more older and a, bit, a little bit more cogent in what they're saying, then obviously with the parents' help, we might be able to tease that out a little bit more.
0: So I guess on the younger ones, you just have to rely a lot more on their sort of behaviour, irritability, lethargy, that sort of yeah. sign that you'd be picking up naturally anyway.
1: And I think that's true in pediatrics in general, isn't it? There's so much that goes into the observation of a patient, and you get so much data from them because we don't, mm. we don't you know, try not to do blood tests, we try not to do scans if we can help it, and so actually you're getting data from the objective signs that the patient demonstrates yeah. and, and the history that you take, and so I think it's a lot about that in the small children. So. What happened to them? Any red flags at the time? What do they look like now? Do you have any safeguarding concerns? Okay, all great. Then we've got enough data to make our decision.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. With these children, if we think about the slightly more worrying ones, are there ever times where we shouldn't be sending them directly to you and we should either be referring directly to neurosurgery or if they're under haematology anyway for bleeding disorders where we should be informing them or going via them? Or actually do we treat this as, this is an accident or emergency, go via you guys and then let you sort out the rest? Yes,
1: latter. So, so we're a major trauma centre in Bristol Children, so anything that is a trauma which you suspect may need neurosurgery comes to us first and foremost there is a trauma team leader line which can be accessed by healthcare professionals but realistically the management is they need to come to us and then we need to do a proper trauma assessment and then obviously neurosurgery will be part of that the only one that I'd say beyond that is if you're known to have something like haemophilia or onverilitis or something like that and you've had a very minor head injury that just won't stop bleeding discussing with haematology in advance that's a possibility if it's massive bleeding it's just persistent but really see that's probably still going to need some txa plus or minus some factor so it's probably still going to come to us but if you've got time and you're very happy with it then obviously discuss with them most of these will be time critical heads if they're really bad it's like if you're seeing someone and you are really worried about them it won't even be a watch coming out to them or your acute transport service it will be get them here as soon as we possibly can ideally with an ambulance a 999 Mm -hmm. ambulance and get them here time critical and then we'll take it from there
0: Okay. And then with those patients where we're going to be reassuring them and sending them home, is there any particular red flag advice that you say we should always say to them or are there any particular leaflets that you use, any resources that would be useful for primary care clinicians?
1: Yeah, so a couple of really good resources, actually. So the Handy app, which has a number of conditions, including respiratory and stress, diarrhea and vomiting, fever, and that kind of stuff. It basically gives you almost a one-on-one algorithm in your hand, and it says, do you have any of these red flag symptoms, yes or no? And then you you, know, you go through to the next one, right, do you have any of these amber ones, yes or no? And it tells you what to do at each time. So that's quite a practical-based one for parents who are not quite sure what to do. It doesn't give a lot of information, necessarily. It doesn't bombard you with actual words. It mm-hmm. just says... This is a practical pathway in some yes. ways. That's quite helpful to get people to download for multiple reasons. I think that's something we can do, and it's it's done in the southwest, so it's made out of Taunton, so it's southwest useful as well. I'm sure people already know the healthier together websites. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes up as naught to eighteen when you type it in, but it's healthier together, Wessex. You just say yes when the first screen comes up. But they've got amazing resources on lots of different things, uh, including head injury. I think it translates it into something like 30 different languages. And there's also Fantastic. a button that you can press at the top. And there's like a little symbol where you can actually text advice to the parents if you put their number in for free. Mm-hmm. So that that's an incredible resource. There's lots of videos on there that are also translated into different languages. We recommend that a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then just to say to the parents, I mean, I would get them to do one of those resources because that's helpful. But clearly, if they have persistent vomiting over the next 24 hours, so more than three vomits, they need to come to us. I quite often think that vomiting is like a tennis ball, and um, stick with me, um, in in, in, um, in raising intracranial pressure, that you vomit, and then you vomit, and you vomit, and you vomit, and, you vomit and, vomit and, vomit, you know, and it's like a tennis okay. ball dropping and getting sequentially closer together always. Mm. But uh, persistent vomiting, they should come. Abnormal drowsiness, they should come. Any focal neurology at all, they should come. A boggy swelling on the head, they should come and bruise over five centimetres in in a child under one, which may take some time to come out, right? Like as in this one's two two centimetres at the time, obviously this is over one, Mm -hmm. but that five centimetres one might come out six hours later, 12 hours later, 24 hours later, and they need to come if that happens.
0: What about those cases then where they go away and you reassure them, you give the parents their safety netting advice, and actually then they come back a couple of days down the line and they're worried because you've got an ongoing headache, they're a bit confused. What do you talk to them about then? What's going through your mind?
1: Yeah, so this is a relatively common scenario, and I mean, it sounds like a child who comes in with that sort of presentation has probably got symptoms of concussion rather mm. than more worrying red flag symptoms of the head injury itself. And it's an increasingly recognised phenomenon, particularly in the sports world. That concussion is a uh, something which has significant morbidity in some ways, and it you know, can mm. really affect people adversely in the days after a, and sometimes weeks after a head injury. Some of the symptoms that are very very common to see are headaches our children being a bit more irritable, not being able to concentrate as well as they would normally, sometimes being just a bit slower or a little bit more confused and just not quite their sort of normal bouncy cells. And again, it's referring back to the red flags, taking a good history of what happened in the first place. Any red flags for intracranial injury, bleed, skull fracture, absolutely need to come to us. But there's increasing numbers of resources out there for concussion, advice to give to people. Most of that advice is basically doing a graded return to activity. Mm -hmm. Um, And I quite often say to people that if you gave your arm a real whack and you had a big bruise there and it was really painful, you wouldn't be worried that it was broken or that you'd never be able to use it again. But you would have to rest it for a few days, you know, and maybe even a couple of weeks, like you wouldn't be going and throwing a cricket ball, playing tennis sort of straight away. And it's the same if you give your your brain a little bit of an injury. And so you do need to rest it a little bit. And that might be having less screen time, it might be playing fewer computer games for, for a short period of time, it might be not doing lots of exertion and intense exertion. And it might just be taking it very, very easy for all a minimum of 48 to 72 hours. The symptoms of concussion can actually last for quite a while and so guidance from NICE is to go to your GP if it's not resolved after two weeks for an assessment to see if any further action is required. But anytime within that, if they're fulfilling that kind of history, I think we can reassure them and give them that advice. We can also push them towards certain resources. There's a really good website from the England Rugby Union team called Headcase. So if you search Headcase concussion, He's got some great videos and some great easy-to-digest resources on concussion and what to do. That's quite helpful.
0: If you're outside about 72 hours but they've still got ongoing symptoms, would you just tailor that graded return to their normal activity as per their symptoms or would you very much say well 72 hours are over you can carry on as you were before?
1: No, so definitely base it on symptoms that's a really good point so they should do what they are capable of doing and they should just step it up gently and I always say to or I quite often say to people particularly with any injuries you're going to think that you can do this at some stage and that's the time to leave it a little bit longer and then then start doing that step and then take the next step. So it's just being gentle. If they are then completely asymptomatic and they feel absolutely great, Mm. then of course just you can move those steps a bit quicker. But taking it easy, being quite disciplined with that at any stage and being guided by what they're feeling, what they're experiencing is really important.
0: And then if we get to that two week mark and symptoms are going in the right direction but they're not back to normal yet, can we safely carry on watching and waiting or would that be the time to be having a discussion with one of you
1: if it's out the two weeks and you're seeing a good trajectory of improvement and um, then I would probably reassure tell them they're doing a great job mm-hmm. and, and to continue this is obviously in the absence of any focal neurology or other red flag yes. symptoms caveats trade descriptions whatever <laughs> but yeah if the trajectory is good and you've got a relatively well child in front of you who's just having a few extra headaches but has no other red flag symptoms yes I would reassure and, and continue
0: brilliant do you have any key take-home messages for primary care clinicians
1: I think the big thing is that that head injury is really common, that you'll see lots of it, that the vast majority won't need a CT scan and there's just really, really good, well-defined red flags for when they'll need it and that is the key management decision for us as healthcare professionals wherever we are. And so looking at those nice guidelines and basing your decisions on that is really, really helpful. Talking to us if you are concerned on the advice line is always a good idea. And if you are worried that this doesn't make sense and that there is any safeguarding concern where you think this could be inflicted or you're not sure, Mm -hmm. then that's always one to talk to someone about. And and we're always happy to take that call.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. I think for me, the main take-homes are firstly that comment about the vomiting, where it's like a bouncing ball that gets more and more sequentially frequent is really helpful. Because actually, if I think vomited once or twice, then my ears are starting to prick up and I'm thinking, oh, is it normal? Is it not? Also with that pattern that you were looking at over time of how does a child act after they've had that head injury Well actually it's okay if they're unsettled and they're not happy for a little while As long as it's then trending in the right direction and the fact that, that that is actually really important And any deviation away from that and we need to be concerned, we need to be talking to you or sending them in yeah, exactly. And then I think the other big one for me is the, the handy app So that's not something I was aware of So I think any GP practices that haven't got a text message automatically set up for head injury that includes the handy app the healthier together and possibly the head injury leaflet that's on the bristol children's hospital website as well and um, she probably set one of those up because that sounds really useful
2: sounds like a really good idea yeah.
0: yeah thanks so much michael thank you so much and i will add at the end of this podcast all the resources that we've discussed today the contents of these podcasts are for educational purposes aimed at primary care healthcare professionals only they do not substitute professional medical advice or consultations with healthcare professionals. Information presented is the opinion of the healthcare professional interviewed based on their interpretation of best practice and guidelines at the time of the interview. It is the listener's responsibility to compare information given with up to date national and local guidelines. The BNSSG Training Hub, Ruth Bowen, and interviewees are not liable for any clinical decisions made as a result of this podcast.